Under no circumstances does A1 Good Investing provide any financial advice or offer any kind of financial product. The content is information and opinions that may be incorrect. Please do your own research and only take advice from a qualified financial advisor. Alright, so this is going to be part two of the first um, Malaysia episode of the A1 Good Investing channel. In this episode, we're going to talk about the Malaysian property market. Uh, we're going to talk about a few of the things in that market that are different to the way they are in Australia. And we're going to be talking about the company uh, United Overseas Australia, listed on the ASX. Um, the, in, the industry section might be a little bit dry, so I'm going to uh, put the time code in the description uh, for anyone who wants to click forward and just uh, look at United Overseas Australia. And so, yeah, we'll just go through their... Um, their management, uh, capital allocation, quality of earnings, and valuation. I first found UOS on that ASX screen that I did of like really cheap companies that had um, very attractive 30-year stock charts. I think this is a really good method of, of looking at a company, just look at how they've done over the years. I think that the, um, the price over, over a long period of time, it generally reflects their return on investment. Um, and if, if it's quite smooth, it just shows a good level of control that they, they have um, over the years that they've been able to adapt to volatility pretty well and, and maintain kind of a good, a good clip throughout. UOS um, or UO, UOA, they kind of used interchange, interchangeably. They're UOS on the ASX, but they call themselves UO, UOA. But they are one of the most successful um, property development um, companies in Malaysia. So they have a market cap of 1 billion offices in Perth and Kuala Lumpur. They own 71% of their subsidiary uh, UOA development and they own 34% of the UOA REIT. Um, so they're both listed separately on the KLSE. But yeah, they... they pretty much control those two subsidiaries. Um, they have property in Malaysia, Perth, Ho Chi Minh City, and they have kind of side businesses that are integrated into their property development um, operations in both hospitality and in wellness. They have a focus on premium, that high quality end of the market. And yeah, as I said, they're one of the most successful companies in Malaysia. They've got very, very good fundamentals, very good financials um, and quite a reasonable price. So some key things about the um, property development market in Malaysia. Uh, it's got a very high rate of investment by uh, common people. It's followed very closely. Um, developments are generally very high quality and regulators are pretty active in recent years just trying to get that right. It's still in the first few decades. So it, it's still uh, um, a target of, of changing regulations. But yeah. Um, investment is skewed towards new high quality developments and in the last um, few years the conditions have been very tough both in the run-up to COVID and during COVID so we'll go through each of those key points um, in a little bit more detail. Uh, historically uh, population uh, sorry housing uh, followed that kind of normal trend of um, kind of centralization 
you'd say. So moving from those rural villages into uh, big industrial centres and then cities like Kuala Lumpur. Um, and throughout, the, like, uh, sorry, the population of KL went up five times since 1986, while the population of Malaysia only doubled. So that's all happened in those last couple of decades of the last century. And throughout, apartment blocks have become the most popular form of housing and of investment, and that's what UOS focus on. Um, and if you look at the image here, this is, it might be difficult to see, that's since 1990, right? So yeah, the, the, this is growth, the growth is the bars. I'll try and describe it a little bit more than just um, have you visualize it. But yeah, the red line is the price, average price. And um, yeah, it's gone through cycles as these property markets always do. Um, the, it's kind of, it was red hot all throughout the 90s and then that led to like that was because wages were doing very well in Malaysia but then you had a bit of a pylon effect and lots of speculation went into the industry and there was that sudden decline in 1997 leading to a negative growth in 1999 as that bubble popped um, since then it's grown every single year at varying rates um, there was another period of pretty significant speculation in the mid-2010s uh, to 2015, and the market eased off from that a little bit more gradually, and that's led to these more tough recent years that we've had. Um, and then with the pandemic hitting, you had another year of negative growth, um, the first time since 1999. And so, yeah, they're, they're really awaiting um, awaiting the old the old success and that return to strength that they've had in the past. And yeah, there's a lot of people awaiting this. Um, Malaysia is, it's approached a little bit differently in Malaysia. And as I said, there's very high investor participation. People are a little bit more wary of other asset classes like stocks, which have been very destructive in the past. Um, and people view them as kind of a form of gambling a little bit more. I know in every society, people have that, have that, have that view as well. But yeah, people, um, it's also a little bit harder to get into stocks not to say it's not hard to get into property, but yeah, there's just a few barriers that have meant that people invest a lot more in property. Um, it's it's all, all focused on new developments as well. So that's what they call the primary market. And that primary new development market is 70% of the liquidity or the, the money that goes into the property market. And yeah, just socially, it's seen as a very prestigious thing to buy into a very high quality new development. Um, it's a, it's seen as a, a better thing to do than to be a stock investor, I guess. So yeah, generally the development themselves are very, very high quality. Um, they get things done very well, just in, in a general sense. There's, there's a pretty low risk of things going wrong um, compared to other ACN countries. They've got the property sector pretty down pat. Um, and one, I don't know, it's a little bit of an example is these Petronas Towers here. One of the most amazing property development, I know it's residential property, uh, it's commercial property, but one of the most amazing property development projects that have ever occurred on earth. And they are, they're Malaysia's pride and joy in that way. They're an amazing development and a lot of the other developments are done very, very well. All right. So in terms of the regulation around uh, housing, 
it, it happens basically in response to some of those run-ups that we've seen um, in the past. And so the government had to get involved. The government regulate frequently, but they also, they do want good outcomes for the sector. So it's not like that worrying. Government actually just want the best for everyone in the sector. But yeah, you do have a risk of frequent changes in regulation that lead to price swings. Um, for example, foreigners pay 30% on capital gains for the first five years. Foreign ownership is restricted to um, $1 million in most states and up to $2 million in some other states. And yeah, they're, they're, those restrictions are trying to try and curb speculative activity. Um, but on the whole, that's not super restrictive. A few hundred grand um, in US dollars, that tax isn't that high. It's high in Malaysia because they don't have any other capital gains taxes. Um, but yeah, it's one of the most investor-friendly ASEAN housing markets. So it still attracts a fair bit of foreign investment. Um, right. So yeah, because of that price hurdle um, and that, that investment speculation that, that is ongoing, it, it's, it's all concentrated in those premium high-end new developments. All right, um, and so over the last few years, margins are contracting due to the, that slow economy and COVID has added additional stress. Um, a lot of the companies in property development are over leveraged or highly leveraged. And with all this stress that's occurring and especially going forward with COVID, uh, the, in, the, the, it's really good to have a good balance sheet right now. Let's just say that going forward. Um, average profitability, um, developers earn between negative, obviously some of them don't make money, but up to 30%. Um, it, larger, larger developments earn slightly less and like cheaper developments earn slightly less while the, the smaller boutique developments can do very, very well. But there's some exceptions, and you can see this exception right here. This it, you can't read it, obviously, but the exception being United Overseas Australia, they're the fifth largest developer, and they earn the highest margins out of the top fifty percent of developers. So they're a very good choice for um, a property investment. Um, so yeah, they're an exception. Costs are increasing across the board. Labor, materials, and land are all rising rapidly. And so, yeah, those tight conditions mean that strength in terms of the balance sheet going forward is very important. Um, industry impactors do a quick PEST or a, a EASTP, if I've got it listed here. So um, economic impacts are the biggest. Um, average wage GDP interest rates. Um, higher GDP more, means more wages and a more liquid market. Liquidity is more important than price. Um, another economic factor is interest rates. Um, as they go up, it's harder to borrow. Um, liquidity gets lower and demand gets lower. So some of those um, developers that are forced to sell and develop tend to sacrifice a bit of, bit of value. Um, and you, you're, again, you just do better by having a strong balance sheet. Um, the industry is very heavily influenced by um, economic factors and there's a little bit of cyclicality that you you might want to take into account but maybe not I mean if you're going into this over a few a few uh, decades I guess um, you, I guess you just might want to time your entry but it's not 
um, vital because some someone like UOS they tend to to keep themselves pretty stable. So yeah, um, social impactors. Uh, the demand for apartments is very resilient. Uh, in Asia, they're pretty de they're pretty established as a very good way to live, um, especially in Asian cities. Work from home um, may change this, but I don't see that happening. I mean, the way that the infrastructure is set up is very that going forward it has a big impact and it just means that you get advantages that don't go away um that yeah all the amenities the pools gyms low maintenance uh, one thing i thought of was that in asia they like aircon you just need it um in those equatorial regions and the aircon is just more efficient in an apartment building another thing that it, is that like having a garden is a pain and I think if I lived in an equatorial region, I would live in an apartment because just even tending to a garden during during the summer is, is just a, a lot of labor. And I think that, that that all going away, having an apartment, it would be it would be like a game changer. So I think that might be a reason why people prefer apartments as well um, in Asia. So yeah, that's there's not too much of a social impact there. Um, Technology, also a pretty... Oh, sorry, demographics. So, yeah, the demographically, um, the population is growing at a slower rate than it has been in the past, but it's expected to continue growing well into the 2030s, um, as well in Ho Chi Minh City, which is where they're building. So that's good. More households is good. Um, the older generation are living longer, and this is more centred on that premium developers and service-based developers because within the apartments they offer services as well. Um, UOS are going into wellness services a little bit more and that's very attractive to the older generation who who want to be looked after and that also um, pertains to the richer more wealthy middle class that we are hoping to see. Um, those services become more more desirable um, and yeah just as well as the the investment um, investment is in in that wealthier middle class investment it, it should be resilient in housing and, and in apartment blocks and that primary development market alright um, and the apartment investment sorry is better than free homes because they're just more risky you get more issues with freestanding homes and and there's more risk of something going wrong or yep something like that um technology influence is minimal um maybe when the internet of things comes out you'll get more of that happening in apartments and so that'll be attractive because you'll get yeah whiz bang new appliances and stuff um and it could be the the process of implementing that could obviously be a lot easier in apartments who knows um and on the tech side as well on the development side you're getting a little bit of supply chain optimization and workflow or work work optimization as they're building these things so you might see incremental margin gains because of that but generally when you're working with such heavy infrastructure and brick and mortar tech doesn't make the biggest difference you're trying to do things as well as possible anyway all right um and political influence so this is interesting because Government are, as I said, they're quite supportive of developers, especially entrenched developers. They work closely um, to help them succeed and to help them to be compliant with everything, get lots of notice on changing regulations, and they're generally able to adapt, and they work together on that. 
Um, connections can help, not meant to, but they can help if you know where um, government projects are going to be occurring in the future in terms of infrastructure. So it's good to have a ex-government person on the board. Um, but yeah, perhaps too connected on occasion. Um, we've seen the 1MDB scandal between one of the big developers and someone no less than the Prime Minister of the country working a bit too closely, leading to a high-profile corruption case. Um, so there is a little bit of an inherent risk of corruption coming out of, of the, the political relationship with property developers. But apart from that, they're quite supportive. And yeah, you get those regulation changes. Alright. Um, let's talk about competition. Here's a few of the main groups. So the main thing with competition is that experience has a compounding effect on success. So it leads to good relationships with suppliers and the labor force, um, good relationships with partners and customers, right? Brands play a bit more of a role. So if you're getting a good branded development, you're gonna get higher investment and people are gonna want to live there more so than we see in Australia. So you, you kind of build brand value a little bit more. Um, as much ownership as possible of the supply chain and the labor force, UOS owns some of the security um, and hospitality companies that they work with. Bigger, bigger can be better and more experience can be better. Um, so yeah, the, the competition just in, it, it's like a, a entrenched group that they, they compete, but they also know that the others are gonna be around. So they wanna cooperate and work together on, on things. Um, they want to be on good terms with each other, but yeah, they're always competing for projects and customers, but yeah, it's very hard for, for entrance, potential other entrants, unless some things change drastically, these entrenched players are going to be the main cartel that, that kind of hangs around going forward. And yeah, the, just the compounding effects of experience just make it very, very hard for anyone else to enter. There's no way around some of the work that needs to be done. So if you're the best at doing that work, you get a big advantage. All right, so more, more talking about the company. That's the industry out of the way. United Overseas Australia. Um, so yes, the management have very long tenure. So they do have that experience, 12.6 years very long-standing industry experience. Um, some of their board members have also worked in other forms of construction, um, mining, construction, and engineering out of, out of Perth, WA. Um, the, founder, Mr., uh, the founder and Mr. Alan Dwindus, who recently passed away, sadly, but they were both from Perth. They went to a school called Perth Technical College, which is now Curtin University. Um, and many of the key managers are Australian educated, um, including Mr. Kong, Kong, Kong Chong Soon, the founder. His children work on the board and they, I think a few of them were educated in Australia as well. Um, Mr. Kong Chong Soon founded the company in 87 after overseeing the building of the Hotel Meridian in Singapore, which is a, a very iconic hotel. So. Some very good experience there. Um, the family is very well aligned through shareholding. Um, as you can see, a billion dollars plus worth of indirect shares in the family trust. 
Um, as I said, Mr. Windus recently passed away, but his experience was in compliance and share registry stuff. So he was on the board of the advanced share registry and he uh, would have been instrumental in setting up the company as being listed uh, on the ASX. But it gives you a little bit of um, little bit of comfort in his compliance stuff. I mean, I think that I just think they're not at a very high risk of having any corruption issues or any of those problems politically. So that's a that's a good thing to see. Um, anything else? Compensation's pretty. Um, yeah, it's it's they get a lot of compensation those top directors, but they've been around for a long time. All right, management's strategy very conservative so they've had a very weighted out attitude in regards to the pandemic um they're very pr careful and prudent with what projects they take on the strategy gener generally is to just amass assets over time which they've done very well um there's a little bit of evolution in their their leaning toward that healthcare um the healthcare and wellness side of things. They want to provide those services a little bit more in the future. Obviously, you can earn higher margins uh, with that activity. They're a little bit aloof. Like the communication, especially with the ASX to, um, shareholders, is a little bit bare. Um, you get a little bit more if you look at it through their UOA development site or the UOA REIT site um, and the KLSE announcements. But it kind of seems like they just want to take care of business I mean, they don't hype the company up. They kind of release the bare minimum, but the transparency is there if you want to look for it. Um, so yeah, um, that strategy, yeah, it's a pretty basic strategy and there's a little bit of exploration there as well as going into um, Vietnam and their Perth development was a little bit ex experimental, um, but overall they're very uh, prudent with those kinds of things and it's really just maintaining that, that very smooth uh, stock chart that we've seen over the years and that's what we want for the purposes of this investment so yeah so capital allocation it's pretty straightforward they just they basically just amass assets in the form of properties which is good for our strategy um, in terms of this investment they're mostly allocating in Malaysia but they have ventured into uh, Leaderville, Perth, Leaderville there and Ho Chi Minh City and they're pretty serious about that exploration into Vietnam. They've recently signed a partnership with a big developer there. But anyway, their, their capital allocation into core capacities is very simple. I mean, they, they're a developer and a REIT. So they just allocate towards these the um, subsidiaries with the intention of... They allocate um, differently each year with the intention of maximizing returns. Obviously, a little bit less development in some times and more... Um, on the REIT side in other times. But yeah, they, they basically just build things. Um, other lines of business, the acquisition of a Chinese wellness company recently, they acquired a controlling interest for $99,000. So that shows a little bit of prudence. They obviously want to own that business going forward, but they're not going to fork out for a massive um, operation. Um, yeah, they own as much of the the stuff in their business as they can. So the hospitality and security operations, they consistently try and purchase and control those um, auxiliary operations as much as they can. Um, they pay dividends depending on the year. So in the past, they paid as much as 6%, more recently lower, around 2.5%. Um, 
financially they're very strong. So they've uh, got $629 million in cash compared to $465 million in total total liability. So that level of um, that that ratio for a real estate developer is very impressive. They're very they're not highly levered at all, so they have a very strong balance sheet. Um, the performance of their capital allocation over the years has returned a ten year medium um, return on investment of seven point two percent. So they've only outperformed the index by a little bit, but it kind of adds up over time, and it's very consistent. And, and it, appear, it appears moderate as well. Conditions have been very tough. So they've maintained that, that um, market-beating return through a very tough period. And all the while, assets have compounded at 13.1% annually. So you're just getting more and more stuff in the business. And we, we like those assets are very reliable. Like their property, I don't think they're overvalued. I don't think there's anything funny going on with their valuations. Um, and they're likely to have the patience to realize the full value of those assets over time. So without even worrying about that expansion into Vietnam and services and stuff, um, their allocation is very good, very smooth, reliable, amassing assets, and it's, it's really excellent for our long-term strategy. All right, quality of earnings. So they, um, Far and away, most of their revenue comes from the sale of, of properties in that large premium quadrant of the market. Um, and yeah, some of it comes from their, their um, REIT, um, taking rents, um, and yeah, other occupancy charges. So uh, rents and when people hold events, and they have like some event um, properties where people rent it out for other, other reasons. Um, there's a little bit of diversity first in their locations, Malaysia, Perth, and Ho Chi Minh, but it's mostly concentrated in, in Malaysia and KL. Um, the revenue from development is obviously very heavily exposed to those economic conditions that we talked about before, but their rent and their other occupancy charges come from more, more services that while they do rely on wages, they're not as heavily influenced by the, those economic cycles. Um, and they actually adapted pretty well during COVID by letting those services out to the broader public in the form of hospitality. Um, and they, they, they want to try and do that a little bit more, um, use those services to generate external revenue that's not entirely based on their property development stuff. Um, so yeah, the REIT pays dividends. Um, and they, there's a little bit of money gained from just the trading of properties within that REIT. Um, quality is, overall, sorry, their quality of earnings and their revenue from all that is very high just because, as we said, they're one of the entrenched businesses within that real estate sector and the industry itself is very well, well established. So because of their know-how, their strength, the fact that they're, they're conservative and they can alter their timing to... to um, to make the most of the cycle, um, that yeah, that the earnings they, they can maximize returns in a very good way. Um, as I said, they earn the high, the highest um, profits out of any anyone in in their their segment of the market. They do very very well. Um, so yeah, in recent years, 
Sorry, yeah. In recent years, they have had a, a bit more choppy, choppy um, profits and income. Um, Ten-year free cash flow is twenty-two percent. Profit margin is between fifteen and up to thirty and forty percent, depending on yearly activities. Obviously, they they have a lot of control over that, and so you really are looking at like a, an average over a very long period of time. They're not necessarily out to make those big earnings quarter on quarter more and more. Um, so yeah, while while you get that choppiness, it's not necessarily indicative of instability. Um, so yeah, recently they have been choppy, but they're fairly measured in how they spend money and earn money. Um, and I think it's safe to say that a lot of that is also influenced by, by COVID and just the status of the property market right now, which they've, they've done pretty well on so far. And there's no real, um, financial impact on the company going forward. They've managed their balance sheet fine. So yeah, um, as we said, going forward, try and earn a little bit more from those services. Um, but yeah, the, the weakest aspect of their earnings is just that that heavy exposure to the market and the economic conditions in Malaysia. But that's okay for our purposes. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit more in this valuation section. So yeah, the tangible book value is very impressive. I mean, they've 154% of the share price, like that their tangible book is 154% of the share price. So a price to book of 0.4. There's a lot of stuff in this business. It's almost a net, it's not a true net. Uh, it's it's a very net assets business. Um, and the, the assets are reliably valued and tangible, like they're, they're properties. Um, as I said, amass assets of 13% a year, um, and they still managed to earn 5.7% on um, their assets uh, in a very tough period. So right now the PE is 12.75 based on guidance for 2021. 20, um, and that was 80 million or something. Pre like they're, they're, gen they're generally closer to the 90 or 100 million um, a year. And they previously traded closer between 5 and 9 PE. But yeah, due to that earnings hit, Right now, it's up a little higher at that 12.75. Um, the price itself has been very resilient, even though let's not talk about the last few days, but the, the, the price has been very resilient um, all throughout all the volatility we've seen. And they're, they're about fairly valued when you consider the time horizon of most buyers and fund managers and the, the risks in Malaysia and, and the property market there. It's not reasonable to expect anything anytime soon, but, um, oh, sorry. And there was one of the biggest price movements that they had in the last year was when an Australian fund pulled out of their holding of UOS. And it was just that it was just like, we're not expecting anything to come out of them soon, but they had hold, held the company for a very long, um, time period before that. Um, and they still liked the company, but that sell off. Um, it was the biggest price and highest volume thing that's happened in the company in the last year or so. So they kind of, they really do fly under the radar um, a little bit. Um, and it's, it's kind of, they're kind of a good company to just pick up, pick up exposure in gradually um, because you don't get that volatility really. Um, so yeah, in terms of my time horizon and my expectations for the company, the price is fine. It's very good. Um, I've got no problem with it right now um 
especially with their massive, their downside protection and those big asset holdings. You just don't see the downside come out. Obviously, they're joined at the hip with the economy, but that's that's good from our, our, our Malaysia thesis. That we, we kind of want that. Um, and they're a very good performer compared to their competition and their peers. So you just get a lot of safety in, in their, their quality of earnings and stuff that way. Um, they've got a little bit of potential on the upside with their pivot to more service-based things and their, their exploration of Vietnam. But um, you can, oh, another, another thing on that, that Vietnam, um, they, it was, they released a memorandum of understanding, right? which means that they have just pledged to work with this company in Vietnam going forward. And I just really liked that because you need that, that experience and expertise in a new market that you don't know. So it just, it's a very prudent, sensible thing. And it just reinforces my idea that this company is very smart. Like they're not going majorly into this new country without teaming up with someone who's, who's been there and who's very well established there. So yeah, there's a little bit of upside there with that, that heading into Vietnam, they could do very well. But apart from that, they're still just very safe with what they do in Malaysia and there shouldn't be too much downside there. Um, and yeah, they won't waste, you can trust them not to waste too much money on on um, on exploratory purposes. So yeah, my holding is quite high. It's one of my biggest individual holdings and I think I'll watch it. I'm not sure I'll add too much more, but yeah, I'm comfortable with having a pretty high exposure to this company. All right, and yes, that was that's about it for um, United Overseas Australia. Um, the yeah, I like the company, and and uh, I think next I haven't chosen what we're going to do for next week, but that that'll that'll probably be an Australian company. It'll probably be uh, um, Australia, US, Malaysia. Maybe try and do a little bit more Malaysia because I like the niche aspect of that, but I also like talking about the other companies that I hold in, in Australia and, and the US and, and yeah, this Malaysia thing, it's, it's not going to, it's, I don't think it's an all in kind of thesis. It's just, it's about a third of my portfolio. And, and I think a one investing just recognizes the value of that as, as a, um, an aspect of someone's portfolio, but probably not the whole thing because you want to have as much diversity as you can. And you just want to be choosing, the most safe, reliable um, companies with the potential surprising upside in any economy. But if you can, if you can find somewhere where you can put in a little bit of work and get a little bit of an extra return and learn something interesting in the process, I mean, why not? We're going to continue with this Malaysia thing as far as we can. So yeah, thank you for for listening. This is the A One Good Investing Channel. Um, you can have a look in the description for my website and read any of my reports. But until next time, thanks for watching.